the Saturday. It's September 3rd, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. We are two of your deputy editors, and we are here in September. Summer is in the rearview mirror. How was it, Ashley? How was London? Your first fall in London. It's already jumper season here, Michael. Aren't you proud of me for getting my Britishisms right already? It's only been a week. The weather's been extraordinary here. Sunny, slightly cool. I've been walking... 20, 30,000 steps a day, just getting my lay of the land around here and also trying to find, you know, dish towels and things like that. But it's been wonderful. And I'm slowly getting acclimated to the English sense of humor. So I'm gradually getting my footing and we'll see how it goes. The global logistics stuff is challenging, right? I won't have any furniture until the end of the month because my things from New York are stuck in customs or something. But who needs furniture, really? The city awaits. Who needs furniture? You have pubs, you have clubs, you've got cafes. Live out in the city. Don't live in your flat. Exactly. I've been talking to a lot of people here about the prime minister situation. We'll have a new one on Monday. It will be announced. It's widely expected to be Liz Truss. And it was really interesting. I was, I've been speaking to a lot of people about this, people in restaurants, taxi cab drivers, the whole thing. And they've all said the same thing, which is that they feel like Truss has more experience and they feel like they have a better sense of her. And she reminds them of Mrs. Thatcher. And one cab driver said to me, you know, we men always like to take orders from women. And I thought, what a contrast that was to the 2016 election and, you know, what happened to Hillary Clinton. So anyway, it was very interesting. A lot to be talked about here on that front. More to come in the next few weeks. We've got more to come on the show this week. We've got Michael Bronner speaking of things out of Britain. We've got the always entertaining, always smart, always fun, Christopher Buckley. And we have our co-editor, Alessandra Stanley, here as well. So it's going to be a fun, fast-paced show. Ashley, where should we begin? All right, so we lost a former Soviet leader this week, Mikhail Gorbachev, died at age 92. We need to talk to one person and one person only about this, the co-editor of Airmail, our one and only Alessandra Stanley, who has some personal experience with the guy. She was the co-chief of the Moscow Bureau of the New York Times from 1994 to 1998. So she has some interesting anecdotes to share with us. And while we have her, we're also going to talk to her about her view from here, which takes the Jared Kushner book and puts it into some Italian context, which she also has plenty of experience about because she was the Rome bureau chief for the New York Times, and she has lots of insight into how that system works. So welcome to Alessandra Stanley. Okay, Alessandra, before we get to Jared Kushner, we would like to send you our condolences for the loss of Gorbachev. Not a moment too soon, but go on. What was your reaction when you heard the news of his passing? This may sound callous, but it was like, I thought he died 10 years ago. But it is amazing how many people he outlived. And, you know, my theory about Russian life expectancies, he was, what was he, 92? In Russian years, that's 120, really, because the life expectancy for for his generation is you know, age 50 or 60. So really, it's a miracle. He lasted as long as he did. I want your best Gorbachev story. You were stationed in Russia as a journalist. So glad you asked. So I didn't have a lot of scoops in my day in Russia, but I did have one. And it was in 1997. So Gorbachev was, you know, way out of the picture and incredibly unpopular in Russia. And I discovered that he had filmed an ad. He, the last Soviet leader, an ad for the most capitalist thing you can imagine, which is Pizza Hut. So this is a front page story at the New York Times, of course, because, you know, the last Soviet leader switches sides. And so he did this whole kind of little vignette ad for Pizza Hut, 
which then had started in Russia. The ad never showed in Russia because the ad itself was sort of a wishful fulfillment for Gorbachev. He goes into a pizza hut, everybody stands, claps, you know, admiringly. An old woman says, if not for him, you know, we wouldn't have this economic chaos. But then a young person says, we wouldn't have the opportunities, blah, 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 blah. So it was clearly wish fulfillment for him and he got a million dollars. I mean, it's just hard for people to understand how hated he was. By the time I got to Russia, which was late 93, 94, he was um, plutonium. I mean, nobody wanted to get near him. I covered his quixotic, let's call it that, presidential campaign in 96. And we literally went to his hometown and nobody came out. There was no parade. There was no greeting. They sort of forced some farmer to give a lunch. And he and Raisa sat there desperate to talk to people who were basically ignoring them. It was on the other hand, he was not a good conversationalist. A fate worse than death. Well, he just, you know, he had a very, he always spoke about himself in the third person, like Cher, I guess. You know, he wouldn't talk. He would just lecture for hours. So he was a tough person to, to be with. Admirable, though he may be. Well, you've delved into another socially awkward creature in your view from here this week, tackling the one and only Jared Kushner and his bizarre memoir, which thank you for reading so we don't have to. First of all, how did you find the book? Well, it is bolarized. I mean, it is just astonishing and quite funny to see how he spins everything that happened into a perfectly benign, well-thought-out plan. So the problem with the book, I think, for him is that he's the hero of it. And so he basically takes credit for every real or imagined accomplishment of the Trump White House. And, you know, the one person who isn't going to like that? Maybe his father-in-law? Donald Trump. Father-in-law is not going to be thrilled to see that when that actually Jared's the one saying, I alone can fix it. Um, so it's a fascinating book in that sense, although it's it, it will drive you crazy because it's just so counterintuitive. It was so self-congratulatory and self-serving. And I wondered, it made me wonder what Mussolini's son-in-law, uh, who also kept a diary and and had it published, how he handled his father-in-law, or, how, or rather how his father-in-law handled him, Gian Galeazzo Ciano, who like, very much like Jared, you know, his father was a very wealthy, slightly unscrupulous businessman, he, very pampered life, married the daughter of a powerful man who went on to take power, and was immediately, Ciano was immediately made foreign minister and was a key advisor. And there was a lot of similarities between Jared and Caliazzo, in terms of their vanity and their feel, and their sort of sense of I'm here on my own merit, not because I'm you know the son-in-law of the duce of choice, but actually of the two, Galeano is much more honest and a better writer. So um, he had a different fate, as did Mussolini. But it's it's fun to read them side by side. Was he strung up by his boots as well? I'm going to let you read his entire diary. Okay, I am half Italian, so I'm allowed to say this. It was a firing squad. But he, got to, he was tied to a chair, so he didn't actually have to stand at his own death. Got to sit down, firing squad shot him and a few others in the back. Wow. As firing squads go, it's, that would be my choice. What stands out to you is like the ultimate eye roller where your eyes basically rolled down the hallway and you had to go catch them? Or Well, there's a wonderful phrase of his where he says something to the effect of, you know, I had just had an amazing success, but the rest of the White House was in crisis. <laughs> <laughs> You know, his descriptions of the Sultan, you know, 
MBS. Mohammed bin Salman. Voilà. Are hilarious because he basically sees him as a second cousin. You know, sort of he feels bad for him because he has to deal with the bad publicity of Khashoggi. But they bond over Middle East plans and, you know, they're sort of businessman's approach to world affairs. I mean, that's the stuff that just makes you howl. But um, also there's some very funny descriptions of Trump as a, you know, beneath it all, a very calm, collected, everything, even the tweets, you know, what they did was basically change the dialogue and, you know, in foreign affairs for the good. I mean, it was just, it's just, it's, I don't even want to ruin it for you. Hey, well, we now, now we've got some additional weekend reading to do, Michael. Actually, I have another. Back to Gorbachev. I have, I have to make a plug because I recently read this amazingly good description of the fall of Gorbachev, Gorbachev's rise and fall. It's called Collapse, and it's just the best description from the other side of what Russia was like under Gorbachev. I think it is Collapse by Mr. Professor, I think it's Vladimir Zubok. I have to say, you know, I've read a lot about Russia. Um, I've written a lot about Russia, but I thought this was just an amazingly smart, interesting view of Gorbachev that came from the other side that most Westerners don't know. And it's a lot about his mistakes that we tend to gloss over because we were so happy that he embraced change. And this is a different view. So I recommend it. Because we have to ask you to guess the future. If Trump gets a second term, God forbid, do you see a place for Jared in it? God, no. No, he'll be cleaning toilets at Mar-a-Lago or Saudi Arabia, whichever place will take him. I I don't see Trump forgiving this. On a lighter note, you know, you're speaking of wearing your jumper, a.k.a. a sweater, this season, and you're probably adapting your style a little bit to what it is you've got in the UK there. But there's a fun story in this week, which I know you edited, about how Princess Diana's style still reverberates. Yeah, I mean, her influence still looms so large here and everywhere. And it's interesting to see that, you know, a lot of the fashion trends that she pioneered are still around. Not all of them I'm on board with. For example, polka dots. Can't get a hold of that. But the knit suit, the big collar, the kind of doe-eyed naivete that she communicated through her fashion choices. uh, You still see it on the streets every day. It's really fascinating stuff. I went to the Princess Diana Memorial Garden at Kensington Palace last weekend. And it was fascinating because they had Princess Diana wearing one of those 80s power suits, you know, with the uh, like scrunched up hem, like very sporty looking. And it reminded me that, wow, I mean, her style influence still looms large, not necessarily on me, but on many others. And I'm here for it. I mean, what's not to love about a big collar, Michael? I've seen you wearing them all over town. (laughs) Okay. You haven't seen Meghan Markle wearing them on her on the video for for her new Spotify podcast, but you know she's got that California cool vibe. In my in my mind, there's a Peter Morgan scene yet to be written where Harry opens up the bedroom door one evening and he comes in and he catches Meghan like looking at all these photographs of Diana, figuring out how to bite her style. But that's just me imagining. Did you read the Meghan Markle cover story in New York Magazine this week? I did. What'd you think? Mm. 
It felt like a rehashing of the Oprah interview. There wasn't a lot new there, except I thought it was interesting. She did say pointedly about the time in early lockdown that she and Harry were building a business, which is just a curious thing for a member of the royal family to say. Even after all of these years of dissecting everything Meghan Markle has said, it still struck me. Yeah. Oh, you know, Spotify, Netflix, and God we trust. Have you listened to the podcast? No, because unlike our speedy 28, 29 minutes, that first one was, what, almost an hour, I guess. The second one is closer to 45 minutes or something. But what does she have to say? What, 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 you know, an hour? Come on. Have you listened to it? We like it short and speedy here on Morning Meeting People. No, I haven't listened to it, actually. It was also reported this week that she was supposedly keeping a diary while she was in the palace. So there's another revenue stream for her, I'm sure, which is if she ever decides to publish or monetize that. All right. Moving right along to less tawdry matters. Where are we going next? Well, less tawdry, but equally um, entertaining. I would love to check in with Christopher Buckley, one of my favorite authors. You know him best for Thank You for Smoking and other sort of masterpieces of satire. Christopher is back this week because he has a brand new book out. It's called Has Anyone Seen My Toes? As Jim Kelly says, it's one of the best books he's written in a long time. It's his 20th book. And Chris is here this week to talk with us about the book, how he got the idea, and what it's all about, and everything else that we want to talk to him about. The man, the myth, the legend. Welcome, Chris Buckley. Christopher Buckley, we have found you on the eve of publication of your 20th book, Has Anyone Seen My Toes? According to our own Jim Kelly, this is you at your madcap best. Tell us a little bit about what the book is about and how you wrote it. Who am I to disagree with Jim Kelly? Well, this, I guess it falls into the category of you know, what I did during my pandemic. I just finished my I guess, 19th book. I needed something to do, but the greater world was denied to us all. So sometimes you just start writing a book. You have no expectation that it's going to be a book. Maybe Leo Tolstoy felt that way when he wrote the opening sentences of War and Peace. Here I am two minutes into my podcast comparing myself to Leo Tolstoy. Anyway, I just started writing and I had already, I guess, put on a few pounds as happens during pandemics. I don't think that happened during the bubonic plague, but it was certainly happening to me. Anyway, it just sort of took off from there. And the accelerant, if you will, came a few weeks later when President Trump was suggesting that we all drink Clorox or inject it. And there was a drug at the time with a very long name like hydrochloroquine, remember? And it was, people were having funny reactions to it. So I, the character in the novel has, is being treated by a concierge doctor who's giving him the wrong mix of drugs. And he starts to imagine things. So that was the genesis of this sure-to-be classic work of 21st century American literature. Anyway, so the character in the book, who is a screen screenwriter, gets this idea that, oh, well, here's Franklin Roosevelt living, staying on the coast, right on the water of South Carolina. What if there were a German plot to kidnap him, land commandos and spirit him off to Germany in a U-boat where he could be held hostage? 
So he starts banging away, and he comes up. He one night he has a, a brainstorm that the title of this book should be Heimlich's Maneuver. Heimlich being the I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh at my own jokes, but Heimlich is the German <laughs> commander who's sent to kidnap FDR. Anyway, so he starts banging out this screenplay, and it's just going gangbusters. He thinks, frankly, writing itself, and he sends first twenty pages off to his agent, his agent in New York, his name Winky. She's cleverly disguised. No one would ever associate her with <laughs> Binky Urban. Who? Says, uh, who? She calls him and says, "Well, gee, it's great." He senses some hesitancy. He says. Yeah, I said. Well, she says, well, isn't it kind of like that movie, The Eagle Has Landed, <laughs> which is about, indeed, a famous book movie about a plot to kidnap Churchill and spirit him away in a Nazi U-boat. He thinks, oh, my God, what have I done? Why am I doing this? So this is his, one of his first inklings that something may be going wacko upstairs in his head. He devises a promotional line for his movie somewhere along the line, which is he set out to kidnap the president, but instead found a friend. You mentioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which reminds us of former presidents. We couldn't help but wonder what your revered father and lovely mother would make of the former president, Donald Trump, in these times. The only reference my people have searched, they've done massive, deep internet dives, archive dives, to see what, what William F. Buckley had to say about Donald Trump. And there is apparently only one reference in something he wrote, my father wrote for the magazine Cigar Aficionado, in which I th there's, there's a passing reference to Mr. Trump's vulgarity. As for my mother, who was a kind of a, she was really quite something. She was like a, a cross between a character in a Noel Coward play and a snapping turtle. <laughs> she used to say about someone or some people, those people are so stupid they ought to be caged. I have a feeling her reaction to <laughs> Mr. Trump and the MAGA crowd would might be an echo of just that. So often, young novelists cite you as one of their favorite writers. I'd love to know the young novelists that you're reading right now that you're finding interesting. Well, I've read a couple of Colson Whitehead's novels and I've been blown away. Well, I just reread because I, I was writing about it for the Wall Street Journal, which will come out this weekend, a book by the late Fred Exley called A Fan's Notes. And talk about, I mean, young writers being influenced by older writers. There are thousands of writers out there, tens of thousands, for whom this may be the great American novel. No disrespect intended to The Great Gatsby. But rereading it was just reminded all over again of what an exciting book. It's, it's both harrowing and hilarious. Fred actually was in and out of mental institutions all his life, and he never really amounted to anything. And then he stunned us with this book, which is available now in the Modern Library, a series with a, with a great introduction by Jonathan Yardley. Anyway, lovely chatting with you. Thanks for having me on. Lovely having you. The book is, Has Anyone Seen My Toes? It's out imminently. You can pre-order, of course, and it's by Christopher Buckley. Thanks for being here, Chris. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. I love reading his books because 
he takes these ideas and they're such high wire acts of creation. They're, they're so funny and he gets all these sort of pieces moving in, and, and, and just when you think he can't surprise you anymore with something, so you turn the page and there's another great twist in it. So one of my favorite writers. Yeah. Speaking of twists, we have another crazy story from the annals of crazy old man and beautiful young woman. Sam Kashner has a wonderful story in the issue this week about Howard Hughes, uh, the reclusive, completely bizarre billionaire who, when he was 40 years old, discovered a 19-year-old named Jean Peters at a party in Newport Beach over the July 4th weekend. They had one hell of a first date. Uh, he test ran the F, the he test ran the XF eleven plane that he had designed for the Air Force. Interesting, and he was horribly injured. He crashed the plane. It ended up inside someone's homes. It, it, it ended up inside several homes in Los Angeles, in fact. And Hughes managed to crawl out on one of the wings, but he was rushed to the hospital. And one of the few people that he allowed inside his room to visit him was Gene Peters. And that was the beginning of a long affair and a long relationship. They eventually got married 13 years later um, in 1957. And they had a very bizarre, atypical relationship. And Sam tells us all about this. He's using it kind of as a parallel in many ways to the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp scenario. Yeah, it's kind of a you know, a, a different kind of hot mess coming out of Hollywood, but it was one that is, is been forgotten, but the way Sam reanimates it here, it's so fun and so revealing. I think it would, would make a fantastic miniseries of its own. Yeah, I agree. One of those long forgotten Hollywood stories that Sam is bringing back to our attention. The intrigue does not stop there. Tell us about the bizarre rogue agent that Michael Bronner profiles for us this week. But before I get to that, I, I, Rogue Agent is, is a film. If you haven't watched it yet, I want to recommend it right here in the middle of the show before we go any further because it is a British thriller. It came out about a month or so ago. You can watch it on Netflix. And it's from a screenplay that was co-written by Michael Bronner and based on his article, Chasing Agent Freegard. In it, James Norton portrays a guy named Robert Hendy Freegard, who was a con man one of your favorite people, kind of, kinds of people, Ashley, who tricked and convinced several people during the 80s and 90s that he was an MI5 agent. It's a bizarre story. Brooke and I watched this movie. She was on the edge of her seat. And the sort of how it came to be is during the, the backstory is he masqueraded as an MI5 agent who fooled several people into going underground uh, for fear of assassination by the IRA. And he controlled these people for years and years, and he was later arrested by the government. But I'll let Michael tell the whole story because he's back with Rogue Agent Part 2 for us this week. Welcome, Michael. Okay, take us back to a week ago. On the night of Thursday, August 25th, a young man named Jake Clifton, 26 years old, gets a phone call from his mother. What does she say? So in the afternoon of August 22nd, Jake Clifton, who's a 26-year-old young man who's lived the last 10 years of his life without seeing his mother and had very, very little sporadic, often incoherent contact with her, gets a call from his mother who's in a hold up in a, a tiny French village in, in the middle of the central French region of Aquitaine. And um, his mother says that she loves him and that she's scared. And she starts to indicate that she wants to see him and he's lived with this for 10 years his mother being missing with this 
notorious con man Robert Freegard or Robert Hendy Freegard or David Hendy, as he introduced himself originally when Jake met him when the parent, the, the mother started dating this con man when Jake was 16. And the presence of mind that this young man has is, and composure is really astounding. And he was able to say to his mother, who he hadn't seen in 10 years, I'll leave immediately and come and see you. But you have to tell me that you want me to come and that you want my help. It has to be your decision. Um, he didn't want to go and tell her what to do or try to force her to leave. He felt like she needed to be making decisions for herself if this ever was going to work. And it was a four-hour phone call, he said, during which time he packed a bag in hopes that she would eventually outright ask for his help. And eventually she did, and he jumped into the car with a friend and started the 12-hour drive straight from uh, Reading in England, where he was living, all the way to this little village in France and got there. He left at five in the evening and got there at five the next morning. And tell us about what the scene was like at that house. The mother had lived there since 2015, and she never let anyone in to the house. She never left. She never went to get groceries. The only person that would come in and out was this con man, Robert Freegard. And he would bring her, according to Jake, he would bring her flour to make bread. And that's basically it. And the townspeople would eventually try to speak with her and she would never let them in the gate. She eventually let Jake inside and he said that he could tell she was dying with embarrassment, even though she was brainwashed, even though she was living in these conditions for so many years, she retained enough of herself to be paralyzed with embarrassment. And what he saw when he went inside is staggering. He said that there were 26 beagles living in crates inside the house. The sound was ear piercing. The smell made him gag and burn the back of his throat. There was no running water that the sewer system was all backed up that she couldn't flush the toilet. She was using a bucket. There was no heat. It gets quite cold in that part of France. Upstairs was a bunch of storage and there was a tiny little mattress for her to sleep on. And she had been living in this reclusive existence completely under Freeguard sway for almost nine years, eight years. And before Sandra met Freeguard, what was her life like? I don't know that much about her. I mean, she was married to um, a man named Mark Clifton, who's the first one to contact me originally, who seems like a very nice guy. And the kids seem completely solid. And they were divorced, Mark and Sandra Clifton. And eventually she was on this, it's a Canadian dating site that's popular in England. And that's where she met this media executive, David Hendy, which of course was not his real name. For those who haven't seen the movie Rogue Agent, Robert Freegard, it didn't come as a bit of surprise that he was conning someone and sort of like controlling someone again because he'd succeeded at this for a number of years in Great Britain. And he was in fact sentenced to life in prison for doing so, but then was paroled. And can you, for those who haven't seen Rogue Agent, which is a fantastic movie, as well as the documentary The Puppet Master, which came out on Netflix uh, a few years ago. But what is Freegard's game, and and how did he, how did he, what kind of scam was he pulling on people? Well, this was really round two for Freegard. I um, got interested in him in round one of his conning career. Basically, he was a young guy from the Midlands in England um, who had no education other than a stint as an apprentice joiner, which is a form of carpentry. 
And he ends up as the barman or bartender in this little Shropshire village of Newport at a place called the Swan, this old pub that's just like every other pub in England. And um, it's near an agricultural college in the Midlands. And he starts telling students that uh, he's not just the barman and he's really undercover for MI5. There were a huge string of bombings, IRA bombings at the time. Almost every day there was a bombing in the UK and people were afraid. And he kind of instinctively and ingeniously used this fear and convinced people that he was a spy and that he was trying to help and played this long game and got them involved and got them these students surveilling these Irish students at school. It was all bullshit, but it got them into this mindset of paranoia. And then he just flipped the switch one day and told them that um, he had been exposed and that they were exposed by association. And he just took them on the run and completely disoriented him. And the um, FBI special agent who eventually helped catch him told me whether it was instinctive or, or he knew more than he let on. And these are very classic techniques for brainwashing people. You separate them from their friends, you separate them from their finances, you separate them from their family, and then you start to control their reality. And he built them of family funds up to $2 million eventually in pounds. It was his way of making a living, but it was also sociopathic. I mean, he strikes me as someone who hates women. Most of the victims were women, but not all. And he hates normalcy and they drive him crazy. And those were the victims that he chose. He used them for sex. He used them for money, but it was ultimately about power. And when he was done with them, he would set them up in these bartending jobs or one was a cleaner and they would live in this paranoid state and, and hand over their, their income to him. And those, he had these very steady, small revenue streams and that was his existence. And then he'd move on to the next victim. And he got better and better at it as time went on. And his final two victims were highly educated women. One was a PhD in psychology in American, and the other was head of legal for a major finance company in London, a lawyer. Both smart people, both people that you wouldn't look at and think were vulnerable. He had this instinct, this sort of animal instinct to find a vulnerability in someone and slowly pick away at it until he had an opening and he would take control of them, and that's how he operated. And someone like that doesn't stop. He was charged with many things. He was charged with fraud. He was charged with theft. He was uh, charged with violence, crimes. But he was also, the, the biggest charges were this novel charge of kidnapping by fraud, which was different than traditional kidnapping, which is kidnapping by force, where you deprive someone of, physically deprive someone of their liberty. He was accused of depriving people of their liberty and imprisoning them through brainwashing. And it was something that had never been tried or charged in England before, but his crimes were so flagrant and the testimony so compelling that he was convicted. Of course, that was also what set him free because technically it's not a crime to coerce someone or even to brainwash them. It's not a crime in the US, it's not a crime in England. And his conviction was overturned on appeal. And he kind of disappeared for a while. So where is Freeguard at the moment? Do we dare to guess? Who knows? It's not a wise thing for a, an Englishman to run over a French policeman in France. He managed to get away, uh, but the, the French gendarmerie is pissed. There's a full-scale manhunt 
it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't catch in. Well, Michael, something tells me this is not the last we'll be hearing of FreeGuard and certainly not the last we'll be hearing from you. So we'll stay tuned for part infinity of his sordid tale. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care. That was another story that should be a movie. We'll leave it to you all to do the casting. Chasing Agent Freeguard Part 2, maybe. <laughs> Before we go off into this good night, do you have anything at all to recommend? I know you're on vacation in Italy and you've not been watching a bunch of junk television as usual. Well, I'm going to recommend vis-a-vis Graham Fuller, who's written a great highlight this week in the issue about a new documentary about the author of The Talented Mr. Ripley, Patricia Highsmith. And this is a film called Loving Highsmith that is currently playing, if you're in New York, at the Film Forum through September 8th. And in it, as he says, it traces the heartbreaking formative years of a kid born into a Texas rodeo family who was shuttled between New York City and Fort Worth by her divorced mother, Mary, who Highsmith later claimed tried to abort her and reminds us that, you know, this, she wrote Strangers on a Train by the time she was 30, and she her life was extremely complicated, very dramatic. She... Um, evolved into alcoholism and and a number of other problems but he says you know this film accomplishes something biographies can't through stills and documentary it emphasizes her evolving physical presence from this kind of our gang like foundling and beautiful woman down to an ailing crone as he calls her riveting film according to graham and i'm going to jump right into it when i get back to town Sounds fantastic. Well, on that note, Michael, we thank you all for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. So Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitelli. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collect Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.